Their beautiful land was destroyed, desolate, lifeless. Fertile hills once green with great vines and wheat are as bare as the desert sands. Olive and locust and cedar trees burned to the ground, only scorched stumps remain. The towns and cities are burned out husks or piles of rubble. When the armies of Babylon descended on them like locusts, they had stripped and consumed everything in their path. The wine, the olives, the grain, the livestock, the family heirlooms. And then they had poisoned the very soil, the earth itself, with salt. Nothing moved. There was no sound. No people chatting. No children laughing and giggling and squealing and playing their games. No hammers no braying of donkeys. Even the birds and the crickets have gone eerily silent and still. And Isaiah's people are so brokenhearted and weary, they cannot stand. Like the lame who once sat along the roadside with weak hands and feeble knees and broken bodies and fearful hearts, they are without hearing, voiceless, visionless. And into this pain, Isaiah speaks words of promise and vision and hope, saying, the Lord, our rescuer, is coming just imagine, picture it. And then he writes, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak knees and make firm the feeble, I'm sorry, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful of heart, be strong, do not fear. Here is your God. He will come with vengeance, with terrible recompense. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped and the lame shall leap like deer and the tongue of the speechless sing for joy for waters shall break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert and the burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water and the haunt of jackals shall become a swamp and the grass shall become reeds and rushes. A highway shall be there, and it will be called the holy way. The unclean shall not travel on it, but it shall be for God's people. 
No traveler, not even fools, shall go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing and everlasting joy shall be upon their heads and they shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. The God of Jacob does not abandon God's people to their despair. Their sorrows will come to an end. God will renew the land and bring them back to their homes and fill this body and these people with new life. It's a glorious vision. It's one that comes to pass. The people of Judah have seen their landscape just devastated. They've been deported. But Isaiah foresees the day that is to come when the people of Judah will return to their homeland and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And had it not been so, we would not be here today. We are inheritors of that promise. All around the world, we see images of destruction. If you're tuning in anywhere at all, landscapes, forests, neighborhoods ravaged by fiery infernos, Haiti crushed by another earthquake, cities in the Middle East ravaged by warfare and armies until they're just burned out husks and rubble, New York and New Jersey and the Louisiana coast flooded with water washed away. I received a text from my cousin Susie in Covington, Louisiana last night. I'd asked her for an update. I hadn't heard from her in several days. And she wrote and she poured out her grief for the trees. Towering trees, hundreds of years old. Trees that had been majestic and had cast shade in the summer. Trees whose leaves had rustled in the breeze and whose branches had bowed down for children to climb and provided shelter for birds singing their songs. And the trees, she said, are all gone. Twisted, snapped off at the trunk, ripped from the ground. And I could feel the weariness in her words at the devastation, at the lack of electricity, at the lack of appliances that would run on anything but electricity, at the lack of gasoline and the long hours of waiting in line to get just a little to keep the generator going, the weariness of facing days and weeks and months, looking ahead of clearing debris, knowing that it will not bring back the trees. We see the weariness of hearts and hands and knees in healthcare workers who have borne the strain of long hours and the grief of witnessing so much suffering and so many deaths. And we're weary too, I would hazard a bet, of bad news, of division, of constant building repair and financial strain and the trials of life 
and maybe weary of facing our own mortality and limitations. And in the weariness, we can become a people without vision, a people without imagination, a people without energy left to do much of anything. But into this misery, Isaiah speaks words of promise and vision and hope. And the psalmist imagines God exalting and executing justice for the oppressed and feeding the hungry and setting prisoners free and opening blind eyes and lifting up those who are bowed down. And the gospel tells us that God has come in Jesus who healed a man who was born deaf and maybe mute and who had his own eyes opened by a foreign woman who was distressed at the plight of her daughter. The God of Jacob, we are told again and again and again, does not abandon us to despair and our sorrows will come to an end and God will renew this land and fill each of us and this body, this congregation with new life. But it begins with imagination, with vision, to see what can be, to see what will be, to imagine the day when we are full and restored. It reminds me of an experience in my life years ago. It was a little thing. It's not a matter of life and death compared to other people's devastation in the world. It's nothing. But still a vivid memory for me of God's restoration, of a resurrection moment, of the power of vision, trusting in the presence and power of God. I had moved to the seminary in Chicago. We were on Woodlawn near 54th Street in one of those, you know, U-shaped old 1920, like early early 1900s walk-up apartment buildings that shared a, a courtyard, a backyard along an alley with the other apartments. And I came to that place and my heart died on the spot. I walked into the backyard of this building, which had peeling paint coming off of these rickety steps and porches that went up the backs of these buildings. And they all were catty candy wampus and looked like they would fall off the buildings at any moment. And in with this drab peeling brown paint was an utterly brown and gray landscape. The yard was constructed of what the, um, the, lay, the yard crew called mulch, but it looked more like an arsenal of stakes fit for slaying an army of, of uh, vampires. The mulch consisted of pieces of wood this long, skewers filled with splinters, shredded all over the yard. I kept thinking if my toddler son were to fall down, he would put out an eye. There was barren dirt and dust under those stakes of wood. 
There was nothing to climb on or play on. There was nothing green, no sign of life to be had. And it all looked out on a rather drab, potholed alley. And my heart died on the spot. I thought, wow, here I'm at seminary and there's no sign of life to be had. I'm going to live here for the next three years. I've got to raise my son in this yard. What is with this place? Why have people given up? Where is the beauty? Why aren't there flowers? Why isn't there grass? Why isn't there anything living? And so I planted some pots with flowers and things, and I'm going to put them out on the rickety porch to have a spot of color and green. And a few other people then put out a few pots of their own, but it was still just a dab in the midst of all of this wilderness, this barrenness. And then a woman moved in around the corner, the mother of another seminarian. We called her Grandma Marie, Marie Radius. Marie was in her 80s. She was amazing. She still washed all the windows and got out and gardened every day. She was in better shape than I am. And I talked to Marie. I said, oh my gosh, Marie, I wish there was grass and flowers and things for the kids to climb on. It could be so pretty here. And she agreed. Well, next thing I know, Marie was outside gardening every day. She'd get up early in the morning and she went out and she dug in this dust that might be called dirt, but I wouldn't call it soil. And it had lots of rocks and cement debris and everything in it. And she began to dig out the rocks and the cement and she made little towers and altars out of what she dug up so that the soil around it could be planted. And then she went around the neighborhood on walks and she would dig up the little violets that came up between the sidewalks on the south side of Chicago and little wildflowers and things that, you know, we might call weeds if they were in our lawns. And she brought them back and she transplanted them, little teeny things, and they would be limp, just laying over there. And then she would water them every day, sometimes twice a day, and nurture them and fertilize them until they grew. I had no idea that the little violets in the sidewalks could become mounds this tall, covered in flowers. She began to plant more and more things. She didn't spend any money on it. She got things for free and she would take cuttings and people would give things down the neighborhood from their yards and she transplanted and transplanted until a corner of this yard became a lush garden with little stones for walking on and, and little sculptures of a frog or something tucked in here and there. It was like a little magical land that you could disappear in a prayer garden outside my door. And then as we did that and began to clean up the yard and try to beautify it and put out plants with flowers, the seminary began to catch on to the vision too. And I said, why, why can't we have grass? And the next thing I know, ours was the only courtyard in seminary housing where they actually invested in some sod and rolled it out in the yard and took up all those stakes and skewers that had Dracula's name on them. And then they invested in this wonderful jungle gym and slide and swing set and installed it in our yard so that the children were coming and playing and the yard was filled with laughter 
And then they began to invest more, and there were some benches that were set out. And a little community garden has developed since I left where people are growing vegetables and tomatoes and herbs and whatnot. And this place that was utterly desolate is green and lush and productive and full of life. And once this yard was transformed, well, then the yard across the alley from us did the same thing. And then the one down the alley and around the corner, it became a thing that bloomed not just in the earth, but in people's vision and hearts. Into the misery, God, Isaiah and the psalmist and the gospel writer lift up words of vision and life and resurrection and promise and hope and says, God, your Savior is coming and has come. And on that day, everything is possible. The lame will leap like deer. Those who are bent over will stand up straight. The deaf will hear. The mute will speak. The very trees will sing for joy. It will be like streams of water welling up in the desert. What was barren will be covered with grasses and greenery and life. It's coming. And it did come. It came to Jerusalem, which was rebuilt and became glorious. And it is coming to us because God is all about promise, possibility, new life, new hope. Amen.